Okay, this is Rabbi Shmuel Y. Pollen, and I want to welcome you to a very serious edition of the Light Unto the Nations podcast. Okay, before we get started, I just want to remind you that I have books for sale. We have All In For God, which covers everything in these podcasts and much, much more. So you can just give over everything we teach here in one shot to a friend or a family member. They can just read this book and they'll have all the perspectives that they need for life as a non-Jew or a Jew and to be happy and enlightened and constantly learning. They just need this book. Um, Then we have Inspiration Brewed Daily which I guarantee will be the most inspiring book of quotes that you ever read. We've had tremendous reviews for this book, and it will fit perfectly on your coffee table. We've got the coffee mug and all on the cover. So to get these books, go to Amazon.com and type into the search box, Shmuel Pollen, my name, S-H-M-U-E-L, Pollen, P-O-L-L-E-N. Hit enter, and my two books will show up. Be sure to get both of them. Now, I said this is a very serious topic, and I was not kidding. It's about the most serious topic that uh, you could possibly deal with. We're going to deal with the Holocaust, and we're going to deal with where was God in the Holocaust. And here's the thing. We don't want to give an answer to this question. We don't. Because what those Jews went through is so horrific that no answer could possibly justify it. So don't take anything I'm going to say beyond this point as an answer. I prefer to think of it as perspective. I'm going to give you some perspective. And why am I doing that? Why am I trying to give any kind of explanation to an event that's so unexplainable? Well, we need perspective because we need to prevent the tragedy from going on and on and on. What happened was 6 million Jews were brutally mercilessly killed and tortured, and that is a tragedy of unbelievable proportions. But if we approach that tragedy and say, well, there is no God, God obviously wasn't involved, God would never let this happen, so I don't believe in God, then we're continuing the tragedy. It's the six million, and then it's the person that loses his faith in God. The tragedy continues. So we need to bolster our faith in God, and the only way we can do that is with having some good perspective on what happened, some good perspective on the Holocaust. The first thing I could do to explain the Holocaust is say simply, it was the Germans who did it. Hitler took power, he had a propaganda campaign, he convinced all the people in the country to turn against the Jews, and they committed the Holocaust. That's an answer. God gave man free choice, and that's what they did with it. But that's not good enough, right? People don't like that answer. Because why would God give someone free choice to do that kind of evil? Why not shackle their free choice a little bit so there's at least borders so that things don't get that bad? We should never get to the point where there is a child being staked with a bayonet by a Nazi soldier. We shouldn't be able to get to the point where there's an elderly man climbing the walls, gasping for air as he's gassed to death. And we can't explain the cruel experiments on children. But if we can't explain 6 million people being gassed, that means we can't explain even one person being gassed. 
It's just the same suffering multiplied six million times. If all six million times are wrong, then the one is just as wrong. Now let's take this to the next level. If we can't explain one person being gassed, then we can't explain one person having cancer. If we can't explain one person having cancer, we can't explain even one person being shot and killed. We can't explain someone being injured. We can't even explain someone with a minor injury. We can't explain a kid who broke his arm. We can't explain a kid who sprained his arm. We can't explain a kid who got bronchitis or who got a cut. We can't explain a good kid getting cut from the basketball team. This is all suffering, just of a different degree and a different amount of people. They're suffering of varying degrees, and it's a matter of magnitude. The suffering of the Holocaust, the torture of the Holocaust, is much greater than a broken arm, and it's happening to six million people instead of one, but it's still just suffering, and the suffering is the issue we need to deal with. Why is there suffering at all? When we can understand that, we'll have a more healthy perspective on the Holocaust. To understand suffering, let's take the most understandable suffering that we can imagine. Working out. Working out hurts because we're bending our bodies in uncomfortable ways and lifting weights that are too heavy for us, and then we're sore for the next two days. It's suffering. It's self-inflicted, but it's suffering. There, we can see it. We can see, yes, there is good inside the suffering. There is good inside the suffering. You're going to get a six-pack. You're going to get a beach body. When we watch movies, people like watching James Bond get into trouble and suffer. People like people getting whipped in Fifty Shades of Grey. And more to the point, people like watching Schindler's List and watching the situation of the Holocaust. You can see the good in negativity. You can see the good in suffering. There is suffering, and inside it, and hidden inside it, there is good. So maybe God, the director of this film we call Life, sees the good in the negativity as well. And in big negativity, he sees big good. The basic good that we see in suffering is that it makes you stronger. Just like in the exercise example, it makes you stronger. It makes you more sympathetic and empathetic because you can now understand the suffering that someone else has gone through. And we also see that sometimes the suffering can switch your course in life to a better course. Like the kid who gets cut from a basketball team, maybe he's going to pick up a guitar and he's going to become a rock star. But he never really would have amounted to much as a basketball player. These, these are some of the reasons why there is good in the suffering. Makes you stronger, makes you more sympathetic, and shifts you your life course to possibly a better one. So one thing we see from the Holocaust is that it made the Jewish people stronger in the sense that they got the state of Israel. The state of Israel was given to them mainly because they had gone through the Holocaust and they were given the land sort of out of mercy. So there is a homeland for all the Jews in Israel. Since biblical times, we have not had our own homeland which is protected from all its borders. There are enemies all around Israel, but Israel's army is stronger than all of theirs put together. We've never had a situation like that since biblical times. So if there's ever the threat of another Holocaust, and there's a lot of anti-Semitism in Europe and in the U.S., so if there's ever the threat of another Holocaust, there's a place for every Jew in Israel. They can flee from wherever they are 
to the land of Israel. And in that sense, the Jewish people have become much, much stronger due to the Holocaust. People who have gone through and survived the Holocaust are far more sympathetic than your average person. They're far more humble. They're far more appreciative. They're wonderful, wonderful people born out of that hell, born out of the crucible. And has it shifted the Jewish people's life to another course? That remains to be seen, but it's possible. It's possible that what we do in Israel is something greater than what we did in Germany. In my book, All In For God, I compare the bodies that were turned to ashes like seeds that decompose before they grow into something. So these people will grow. We believe as part of the the number 13th one of these articles of faith that you must have to be a proper Jew is belief in the resurrection of the dead. So these bodies decomposed are actually like seeds that are decomposed and are going to grow into something greater. They're going to grow into people that are much greater than the people that they used to be in Germany and Poland. How holy are these people that survived the Holocaust? My Rebbe, my rabbi, was once asked, what do I do for a blessing if I can't get to you? Or what do I do for a blessing if I can't get to any great rabbi when I need a blessing? He said, go to a Holocaust survivor and get a blessing from him or her. That will be an unbelievable blessing for you. That's the holiness of these survivors of the Holocaust. But the actual people who died will come back in their prime and we will be able to hug them and give them comfort. Let's talk a little bit about the child with cancer or the adult with cancer. From the book Chicken Soup for the Soul, we have from 2011 an article about someone who had cancer and who approached it in a very unique way. On March 15th, 2011, I sat in my living room with a few friends celebrating my friend Sherry's birthday. We had both recently turned 44. Eventually, the conversation came around to an acquaintance of ours who was dying from a very aggressive form of breast cancer. Look around you ladies, I said. With the stats as they are, there is a good chance that one of us will get breast cancer. As if some creepy premonition were unfolding, I found it the next day, a lump in my left breast. Life would never be the same. Like most people who are diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, I I underwent the typical stages of grieving, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. I can almost pinpoint the exact moment that I transitioned from depression to acceptance. It was a beautiful day in October, six months after my, my initial diagnosis, and my body was under assault from a very difficult round of chemotherapy. I was lying in bed looking through the upstairs window as my mother collected the last summer tomatoes from my greenhouse. It saddened me that I was not out there with her, enjoying the sunshine and harvesting the fruits of my labor. Life seemed so unfair. While wallowing in self-pity, I realized that I had a choice to make in how I was going to face my cancer journey. I could choose to focus on the pain, suffering, and utter devastation that is cancer. There is no denying that few things in life can rival a cancer diagnosis for the award of worst thing that could ever happen to you. Cancer brings with it the terror of facing an untimely death, uncomfortable and painful treatments and procedures, loss of identity, coming to grips with a new body image, strained relationships, and financial setbacks of ruin. This is the reality of cancer. Despite the ugly reality of cancer, I still had some choice of facing it with a positive attitude. It suddenly dawned upon me that feeling sorry for myself was not going to help me get well. 
As a psychologist, I knew that positive emotions such as happiness and joy help to boost the immune system and enhance healing. Negative emotions such as anger and depression, on the other hand, have been proven to suppress the immune system. Since I needed a healthy immune system to fight cancer, a positive attitude was vital to my recovery. I convinced myself that cancer wasn't that bad. Hey, it even had its perks. For example, since getting cancer, not once did I have to help with the dishes at big family dinners. That thought made me smile, and instantly I felt a little better. I then issued myself a challenge. If finding one perk could bring a smile to my face, I would find 100 perks of having cancer. And so a blog was born, www.perksofcancer.com. Blogging the perks of having cancer has been instrumental in helping me maintain a positive attitude throughout my cancer journey. Instead of focusing on all that cancer has taken from me, it allows me to see the gifts that cancer has brought to my life. Gifts such as perk number 21, cancer helped me find my soulmate. Perk number 25, cancer connected me to a powerful prayer network. Perk number 28, having cancer revealed to me a whole new side of my autistic son. Perk number 34, cancer made me realize my own strength. Having cancer forced me to evaluate my life and make some major changes. I ended some relationships that were not serving me well, and I put more of my energy into those which were. I identified work environments that were toxic to my spirit and embraced a change in my career. I started to feed my body nutritious foods and made exercise and meditation an important part of my day. As ironic as it may sound, this past year with cancer has been one of the happiest of my life, she says. Would I give up my cancer? Absolutely, in a heartbeat. However, I would not part with the changes that cancer has forced me to make in my life. Some say that a positive attitude alone cannot cure cancer. I agree. However, a positive attitude combined with positive action will give me the best chances of surviving this disease. If I live another 40 years, it will be a wonderful thing if I can look back on this year and say that I lived with happiness, joy, and grace. If I live only one year, then it is even more important that I be able to say I lived it that way. For that reason, I choose to fight cancer with attitude, a positive attitude. Florence Strang. And she has a book. So there are two ways to approach cancer. What it's taken from you and what has it given to you. And I think we all know which one is more healthy for us. So there are two ways to approach the Holocaust. What it has taken from us and what it has given to us. And I think we all know what the right attitude is. Now, where was God? Where was God during the Holocaust? You might think he's watching it like we watch a movie because he's the master of the universe and we're just the ones bumbling around down here. But he's not watching it aloof. The Bible says, In od milvado, there is nothing but him. So that means he is this universe. He is this world. He's totally invested into this world. If it hurts us, it hurts him. If the gas is suffocating someone, it's suffocating him. If a baby is getting stabbed by a bayonet, he is the baby getting stabbed by the bayonet. Whatever happens to the characters happens to him. So to answer the question, where was God in the Holocaust? He was in the gas chambers. He was in the trains. He was dying of thirst. He was the child being experimented on. He was Mangala. He was Hitler. He was all of it. Ain't owed Milvado, there's nothing but him. I think we might all be familiar with the Chicken Soup for the Soul story about the baseball team where one kid had cancer and his hair fell out to make him feel better. His teammates on his baseball team all shaved their heads as well, which is a very inspiring story. But it didn't take much for the friends to shave their heads because they were all doing it. So there was no peer pressure not to do it. But what it did for that child who has cancer and what it does for all of us 
who hear the story and are inspired by it will last forever. So the first thing we need to do is focus always on the light and not on the darkness. Part of realizing that it's light is realizing that it's a storyline, that it's from God, that it's part of a story. A story needs failure and it needs suffering and it needs redemption. Everybody likes a good story, right? Well, we're living that story and the Holocaust is somehow part of that story. It's somehow part of that drama. It's somehow part of that suspense. Part of the suspense is that we don't know why it happened. But we can realize that there is good hidden in every suffering. And we can realize that that kid with cancer and his teammates made us all better people. If we don't try to gain this perspective, if we don't try to gain a positive perspective on the Holocaust, we lose faith in our Father in Heaven, and that means another family is broken apart. The tragedy then grows larger. One positive thing that came out of the Holocaust, that's definitely positive, is Viktor Frankl, the author of The Search for Meaning. Now, among intellectuals, his book is considered like the most important book ever written. Jordan Peterson, a famed clinical psychologist and author and speaker, says if you have to read just one book, that should be the book. That's the kind of impact he had, and he was a survivor of Auschwitz. See, in his situation, there was no sanitization, and there was no food, and there was no drink, and people were dying. And he saw that people who had meaning in their lives, they had something to live for, they survived, and the people that didn't have meaning perished. And so through that, through psychological, clinical psychology, he found that our truest desire, the one that actually keeps us alive, is not food or sex, it's godliness, because there's no meaning without God. So this completely changed psychology, and in doing so, completely changed everyone who goes to psychologists' lives. There's a story of Jewish people on the train to Auschwitz singing Ani Mamin. Ani Mamin, Ani Mamin, Ani Mamin, Bemuna Shelema, Bevia Samashiach, Bevia Samashiach, Ani Mamin. That means I believe with complete and total faith in the coming of the Messiah, may it be immediately. That song existed before they sang it, but it has taken on a whole new meaning after they sang it. The song has now touched the hearts of tens of thousands of Jews, renewing their faith, giving them strength, that the Messiah will indeed come and will truly answer this question the way it needs to be answered. And let's keep the Holocaust in context because there's a tremendous amount of suffering that we also need to recognize and mourn. And one of them is the seven sons of Hannah. It was around the times of the Hanukkah story that Antiochus was determined to enforce his vicious edicts upon the Jews effectively destroying their attachment to Torah. He forbade the observance of all religious laws. Anyone found with a Torah would be executed. Circumcision, kosher food, Shabbat, all the vestiges of Judaism were outlawed. Philip was appointed governor of Judea, and he set out to ruthlessly enforce the king's edicts. 
he decided to begin his campaign with the arrest of the notable sage and high priest Elazar. Elazar thwarted Philip's design by choosing martyrdom over submission. Soon after, Hannah and her seven sons were arrested. When the king, who was returning to Antiochus, heard about the events which were taking place in Jerusalem, he decided to take an active role in enforcing his decrees. The mother and her son were bound and brought before the king. Antiochus tried to convince the eldest boy to abandon the Torah. The youth responded with great confidence. Why do you bother us with this long speech trying to inflict your abominable religion upon us? We are ready to welcome death for the sake of our holy Torah. The king was furious and ordered the boy's tongue, hands, and feet severed and placed in a fire. The soldiers proceeded to torture the boy, forcing his mother and six brothers to watch his excruciating pain. Antiochus was sure that this sight would intimidate his prisoners into unquestioning submission. Instead, the martyrdom spurred the family to a deep resolve to accept their fate and to sanctify God's name. When the second brother was brought before the king, even the members of the king's retinue begged the boy to obey the king. The boy, however, replied, Do what you will with me. I am no less than my brother in devotion to God. The second son's torture was as bitter as his brother's had been. And as he died, he told the king, Woe to you, pitiless tyrant. Our souls go to God. But when God will awaken the dead and his martyred servants, we will live. But you, your soul, will dwell in a place of eternal abhorrence. To the amazement of all, the third brother unflinchingly suffered the same fate. The fourth brother echoed his brother's exhortations and faced his brutal death. With firm resolve, before he was killed, the fifth brother turned to Antiochus and said, Don't suppose that God has handed us over to you to exalt you, or because he hates us. It is because he loves us and has granted us this honor. God will take his vengeance upon you and your progeny. Seeing the positive in the suffering, he sees the, the opportunity for self-sacrifice that will bring him great riches in heaven. The bloodlust of the king was not assuaged, and the sixth brother was brought to the same end as his brothers who preceded him. His words bespoke his deep faith that God would ultimately requite the sufferings of his servants. Throughout this horrible sequence, Hannah, the mother, stood by her sons, giving them strength and encouragement. Now, only the youngest child remained to face the king. When they brought the boy, the king offered him gold and silver if they would just do his will. The seven-year-old boy displayed the same courage as his brothers and taunted the king to carry out his threats. The king couldn't believe such words coming out of a mere child, and he called out to Hannah. Hannah stood before the murderer of her children and listened to his words. Woman, have compassion on the child. Persuade him to do my will so that you will have at least one surviving child and you too will live. She pretended to agree and asked to speak with her son. When they stood together, Hannah kissed the boy, then said, My son, I carried you in my body for nine months. I nursed you for two years and I have fed you until today. I have taught you to fear God and uphold his Torah. See the heaven and the earth, the sea and the land, the fire, the water, the wind, and every other creation. Know that they were all created by God's word. He created man to serve him, and he will reward man for his deeds. The king knows he is condemned before God. He thinks that if he convinces you, God will have mercy on him. God controls your life's breath, and he can take your soul whenever he wants. If only I could see the greatness of your glorious place, where you would be illuminated with God's light and rejoice and exult together. Hannah returned to the king saying, I was unable to prevail upon him. 
The exasperated king again addressed the child who answered him, Whom are you seeking to overpower with your words and enticements? I laugh at your foolishness. I believe in the Torah and God, whom you blaspheme. You will remain an abomination upon all mankind, loathsome and far from God. The king was enraged. According to the Talmud, Antiochus gave the boy a chance to save himself by ostensibly bowing down to retrieve his signet ring, and the boy refused. As they removed him, Hannah begged to kiss him one more time. As if speaking to all of her seven children, Hannah said, My children, tell your ancestor Abraham, you bound only one son upon the altar, but I bound seven. Then Antiochus ordered that the child be tortured even more than his brothers, a small child. Hannah was left surrounded by the bodies of her sons, a prayer exalting God on her lips. Then the distraught woman threw herself from a roof and rested beside her martyred sons. We can't begin to go through the tremendous suffering that the Jewish people have gone through. Let's not even get into the destruction of the first temple where the hunger was so severe that mothers were even eating the flesh of their own dead babies. Not to mention the horrors of the Crusades, the horrors of the Spanish Inquisition. The Holocaust is nothing new. We have been going through Holocaust generation after generation after generation. The Haggadah says, in every generation they rise up to destroy us and we survive. It all started with Cain and Hebel, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel and that was the first murder. And it's never stopped since then. Habakkuk, the great prophet, asked of God, Why do you allow violence, lawlessness, and crime, and cruelty to spread everywhere? That's Habakkuk 1.3. We ask this question. Why does God let even one person be tortured to death? Why does God let even one person be killed at all? Why does God let anyone suffer from disease? If we can answer one, we can answer all, right? But we must demand more. We must demand a more full explanation that justifies each and every person who suffered and all the suffering that they endured. One question remains. If they grew from this experience, if the Jewish people grew from this experience, the question remains. Why couldn't they grow without the suffering? That's the real question. And for this, we have not received an answer. The real question is, why isn't the, isn't the Messiah here right now ushering in a time when we don't need challenges to become great. For this, we will have to wait for the Messiah. May he come speedily in our days.